Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to John chapter 17 this morning. We're in John chapter 17. Terry was uh, working through a couple of verses last week. This, as he mentioned, we can call the true Lord's Prayer. I want to begin this morning with a quote from a longtime pastor and author, Kent Hughes. He says this about John 17. John 17 is one of the greatest chapters in the Bible and certainly one of the most treasured. Some refer to it as the holy of holies in sacred scripture. The revelation of the inner sanctum of Christ's heart as he bared his soul in a final public prayer to the Father before he stepped out into the night and onto the cross. This chapter was read to the Scottish reformer John Knox every day during his final illness and in his final moments. John chapter 17, 26 verses have been inspiration of massive works throughout history. Oliver Cromwell's chaplain, Thomas Manton, preached 45 sermons alone in John chapter 17. So we're going to be in John 17 for the next year. We will eventually finish. Marcus Ranford, an Irish preacher, he wrote expositions of more than 500 pages on John 17 alone. A, a recent conference we just returned from, um, pastor, author Steve Lawson, this is one of his favorite chapters in the Bible, and he preached one verse for every verse in John 17, so 26 sermons on the 26 verses. So I hope you see there's a lot of information that we could work through in John 17. So I'm starting again in verse 1, even though Terry preached through it last week, because there's more for us to see, and we're going to work through verse 8 this morning, looking at a couple of new elements that we haven't touched base on. John 17, beginning in verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father. I want to pause here because something incredible just happened that we could miss. This is called the high priestly prayer of Jesus Christ. Why is it called that? The high priestly prayer, because it's really Jesus entering in as our high priest before God's perfect presence. What just occurred, what Jesus just did, no man could do. No man was allowed to do. The high priest could only go into the Holy of Holies one time a year, and he couldn't just enter into this place as he will. No, he had to prepare him. Self. There was a certain day, a certain time, and a certain way he could enter that. He had to offer a sacrifice before he would enter into the presence of God. Yet, we see in John 17, Jesus enters into this perfect presence of God in prayer. Anthony Carter, in his book, Blood Work, says this, As priest, Jesus offered himself as the sacrifice for all our sins. In the Old Testament, the high priest was our mediator between a holy God and his sinful people. As mediator, the high priest would enter into the holy place and offer a sacrifice to God on behalf of the people one time a year on the Day of Atonement. He sprinkled the blood of the sacrifice on the mercy seat because of the uncleanliness of the people of Israel, because of their transgressions and their sins. This he did year after year after year. But Christ is our mediator, the high priest, not only offered a sacrifice once and for all, but he is the sacrifice. Like the high priest of old, Christ entered into the holy place, but unlike the priest, he entered to offer himself. 
and he had to enter only one time, for he sprinkled his own blood on the mercy seat. The writer of Hebrews reminds us of this and points to Christ as our mediator. It says in Hebrews 9, 11 through 14, when Christ appears as our high priest of the good things that have come, then though the greater and more perfect tent, not made with human hands, that is, of this creation, he entered once for all the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats or calves, but by means of his own blood, securing our redemption. Hebrews seven twenty-seven says, He, Jesus, has no need, like those other priests, to offer sacrifices daily, for his own sins, and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. He had a perfect life. In verse 1 it says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify the Son, that the Son may glorify you. We need to see in this prayer, it's easy for us to see Jesus as lower than God the Father because of the way he's praying. We need to understand Jesus is part of the Trinity. And that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are one of mind in all matters and decisions. So when we see Jesus enter into prayer, we need to make sure we don't see him as beneath the Father. But he's praying what has been determined and decided upon within the Trinity before creation. So he's praying. He's not petitioning. He's not pleading. But he's praying for something that has already been agreed upon. Jesus is not revealing new information, nor asking for something. He's asking for something that he has already decided within himself, within the other members of the Trinity. He says, glorify your son. And for what purpose is the son glorified, according to scripture? So that the father may be glorified as well. Something we might not notice is when Jesus says, glorify your son, he's making a claim to be God. Now, we might think that seems counterproductive because if he was God, he wouldn't say glorify him. But according to the Old Testament, God's glory could not be given to someone because they would have to be God. Isaiah 42, 8, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another. Isaiah 48, 11 says, For my own sake and for my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. So God's glory can only be to himself. It can't be given to anything else. So when Jesus is saying, glorify me, he's really making a claim to to be deity himself. We see this in the New Testament played out. The Old Testament says God's glory can only be upon God. The New Testament says God's glory was upon Jesus Christ And that's why it should solidify the Old Testament that says Jesus is God. Because you can't have both. Colossians 1.19, For God was pleased to have all of His fullness, God's fullness, dwell in Him, Jesus Christ. Colossians 1.19. Colossians 2.9 says, For in Him, Jesus Christ, for in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So we see Jesus is glorified and has the glory of the Father. He's not to share it. This is why they could have those scriptures. R.C. Sproul says this. I, I love this quote. When we seek glory, church, when you and I seek glory, we do so at the expense of the glory of God. 
So when I seek man's approval, I'm doing so at the expense of God's approval. Because you and I don't deserve man's approval. But when we seek someone to lift us up, or when we seek approval for something, or when we seek our name to be lifted up, or for us to receive credit, or we get bent out of shape for something, we're really stealing from glory that should be given to God. Because everything we do that's good, we should say it's not my doing, but His doing. To God be the glory, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we do what? All for the glory of God. So anytime we want to lift ourselves up, we're really stealing from God. But Sproul says, when we seek our own glory, we do at the expense of the glory of God. But when Jesus asked the Father to glorify Him, it was not at the expense of the Father, because the glorification of the Son is the glorification of the Father, one and the same. I want to continue on here. It says, the Father, the hour has come, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Verse 2 says, Since you, the Father, have given him, Jesus, authority over all flesh. You'll notice in this passage the word give and given. It's actually used 16 times. Give and given. This is why my sermon title this morning is Given to be Given to Give Back. Given to be given to give back. Back. In this prayer, we're going to see God the Father. I notice I do this. When I'm doing this, this means God the Father, Jesus Christ, and this is going to be us. Okay? Not in order of really Jesus is equal to God. I'm just, this is kind of representative. Father in heaven, earth, or Jesus on earth. So, God the Father, give to Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ in the passage, we're going to see he gives it to us. So, point number one. The Father gave Jesus authority over all flesh. Well, what does that mean, authority over all flesh? This is something new, but it's old because we saw it first back in the book of Daniel. It says, Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. This is the passage you want to go to when a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon shows up at your door and they talk about Jesus being made lower than God or that Jesus isn't God, or that we should only worship Jehovah. This is one of the passages you should turn to. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. It says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the cloud of heaven, there came one like a son of man. That's speaking of Jesus Christ. And he came, so the son of man came to the ancient of days. Any guess who the ancient of days is? God the Father. Right, So the Son of Man, Jesus, came to God the Father and was presented before Him. And to Him, Son of Man, was given the following, dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, languages should serve Him. Not God the Father. God the Father gave it to the Son of Man that all nations, kingdoms, peoples, and languages should serve Jesus Christ. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall never pass away. His kingdom, one which shall never be destroyed. So we see here that in this passage, Jesus was referencing some events that would soon take place. This kingdom that he spoke about. 
If you read through the Gospels, you read about how they say, repent for the kingdom of God is what? At hand. It was upon them. Later in the Gospels, Jesus says, for the kingdom of God is upon you, surely if I'm casting out demons by the Spirit of God. And he was. The kingdom of God was imminent. And it was right upon them. And so Jesus was pointing in this prayer to this kingdom that was promised long ago that he's the heir to. He's really the king of, but he hadn't gone through that coronation ceremony. If there's an empty throne, and there is the prince, and there's no one seated on the throne, really the prince is already the king, but until that coronation ceremony, it's not official. And this is what Jesus was in reference to. Until the death, burial, and resurrection, he would enter in. But he's referencing it. So what is this authority over all flesh? Matthew 11, verse 27 says, all things have been handed over to me, Jesus Christ, by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal himself to. Matthew 28, 18 Jesus said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, in a sense, this authority has always been, but it's just with that coronation ceremony. So verse 2, it says, since you, the Father, have given him, Jesus, authority over all flesh, the rest of the verse goes to teach us what that means. Look in the rest of verse 2. He's given authority over all flesh. To give, what? Eternal life to all whom you, God the Father, has given him. So point number one says this. The Father gave Jesus authority over all flesh. But point number two, according to the text, says Jesus gives eternal life to those whom the Father first gave Jesus. I know this is a difficult truth, but it is just that. Truth. Scripture is saying Jesus Christ gives eternal life to whom? Only those whom God the Father has given him. So God the Father has given people to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, with those people, Scripture says, those who have been given from the Father to Jesus, Jesus gives them something. And what he gives them is eternal life. Thankfully, we don't just have to see John 17 to hear this. Every time God gives us difficult truths, he doesn't just throw one zinger in there, right? Here, struggle with this and just throw a zinger in there. But actually gives us scripture after scripture after scripture. So I want us to look at scriptures, staying in the same book. We don't even have to go to Romans or Ephesians or all these other books that talk about these things. But staying in the book of John, I want to show us verse after verse after verse that uses the same language and terminology of the Father giving to the Son and the Son giving to us. For starters, we can't look, overlook John 17. I mean, how many times does God's Word have to say something before we believe it, right? Just once. But He can bring about clarity through other scriptures. So John 17, I give eternal life to all whom the Father has given me. Let's turn to John chapter 6. Go ahead and turn in your Bible, John chapter 6, verse 37. 
John 6, verse 37. In this passage, it says, all, this is Jesus speaking, John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me, what happens to those? They will come to Jesus Christ, right? So there's this language there of those who have been given from the Father will come to Jesus. And whoever comes to Jesus, Jesus says, I will never cast out. Look in verse 39. Jesus says, and this is the will of him, the will of God, the Father, who sent Jesus. He says, this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. So those given from the Father to Jesus, Jesus now says, I will not lose one of them. This is why we teach and we believe in eternal security. Because Jesus says they're eternally secure. He says, I will not lose one single sheep that the Father has given me. So that's why we can't believe that people may lose their salvation. We would just say they never had it to begin with. But we can never say they lose it because Jesus is the one who's keeping it, not them. And so if Jesus says he's keeping it, we have to believe he's keeping it. And he says, I will not lose one of them. So I want us to see there are no dropouts in the graduating class of Jesus Christ. If you're in the class of Jesus Christ, you're not going to drop out. There are no dropouts, but we also need to see, and this is the difficulty. Everybody says amen with dropouts, but the difficulty is Scripture also teaches there's no drop-ins. There's no you're halfway through the semester and people drop in. No, they're already in the class They may be this year's class or next year's class, but they're in a book. According to Revelation, they have their names written that they're going to be that graduating class. Whether it's this year or 10 years from now or 50 years from now, their name is in the book. John 6, 44, a couple of verses later, says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Do you see the surety of these commands? No one is going to come to Jesus unless they are sent or drawn by the Father. One last passage, go a couple of pages over. John chapter 10, verse 24. This is a passage where the Jews are coming up to Jesus And they're saying, how long are you going to keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you would not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness about me. But you do not believe. Why does Jesus say they don't believe? Because they just haven't intellectually grasped it? Or they haven't had enough faith? No, he says, you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. He says, you're not one of my sheep. Verse 27, why aren't they his sheep? Because they haven't chosen to be. That's what I would want to say. But scripture says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And then Jesus says, I give them eternal life. He gives eternal life to his sheep. They will never perish 
And again, eternal security here. No one will snatch them out of my hand. If you're in Jesus Christ, no one, not this world, not Satan, not anyone can snatch you from God because he is the one who's holding you. My father, listen to verse 29, my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. And then Jesus sums it up, I and the father are one. So the Father gave his sheep, his children, his elect, his predestined to Jesus. And Jesus gives those people something. And we see this in our next verse. Verse 3, eternal, or verse 2, he gives them eternal life. I give eternal life to all whom you, the Father, has first given me. Verse 3 goes on to clarify what this eternal life is. Verse 3, and this is eternal life. That they know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is the only place in the entire New Testament where Jesus refers to himself as Jesus Christ. This leads to point three. To have eternal life is to know God through Jesus Christ. For those writing it down, to have eternal life is to know God through Jesus Christ. Church, it is not just enough to know God or to know Jesus. Scripture says you should know both because you don't know God until you know him through the Son, Jesus Christ. J.C. Ryle says this, The mere knowledge of God is not sufficient and saves no one. We must know the Son as well as the Father. And I love this next part. Listen to this about God. God being known without Jesus Christ is a being whom we can only fear and not dare approach. If we know God without Christ, he is a being to be feared. But when we know God through Jesus Christ, it changes everything. Because Jesus Christ is our mediator. He reconciled the world unto himself. It's Jesus Christ who gives us peace, who not only died for us, but he also lived for us. He lived the perfect life so that when God looks at you and I, he not only sees sinlessness, but he sees a perfect life, righteousness that we didn't live out, but Jesus lived out for us. Ryle says, unlike the first Adam who failed to do God's will and brought sin into the world, the second Adam, Jesus Christ, has done all and left nothing undone that he came to do. So I want to ask this morning, do you know God through Jesus Christ? Just because you go to church, just because you're religious, just because you grew up in a Christian home, none of that matters if you do not know God through the person of Jesus Christ. So have you in faith trusted in Jesus Christ? His death for your sins, his burial, his resurrection, defeating sin, defeating death, that he opened up heaven for us to be able to have a relationship with God the Father? Have you trusted in him? Have you in prayer and in faith turned to him and say, come into my life, save me? If you haven't, today, scripture says, is the day of salvation. So in prayer today, you need to bow your head and ask the Lord to forgive you. 
to know and understand what he did on the cross for you. If you have questions about what it means to be a believer, please find me after the service. I would love to meet with you. I want to move to verse 4. Jesus said, I glorified you on earth, having the work that you gave me to do. Here again, we see something given to Jesus from the Father. According to verse 4, what did God the Father give to Jesus to do? Work. And here's some things that Jesus did according to work. Actions. Jesus did actions. John 5, 19. Truly, truly, I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself unless he sees the Father doing it. For whatever the Father does, the Son also does. So Jesus did work according perfectly to God the Father. Teachings. Jesus came. And his words and his teachings, John 7, 16, my teaching is not my own. Jesus replied, it comes from him who sent me. Even Jesus' speech, John 12, 49, for I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. So Jesus was living this life of actions, deeds, teachings, thoughts, prayers, everything perfectly according to what the Father wanted him to do. This is why Jesus would proclaim on the cross, it is finished. He accomplished all perfectly what the Father had him set out to do. Verse 5, now Father glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. We go on to verse 6, 7, and 8. These verses continue to support that difficult truth that I know I struggled with for years of God's sovereign choice in election. Notice as we work through 6, 7, and 8, the words give and given. They're continually between God the Father and Jesus Christ. Verse 6, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. John 17, verse 6. I encourage you, if you're not in your Bibles, go ahead and turn. I want you to see it in your own Bible. John 17, verse 6. says, I have manifested your name. When I read this word, manifested, I immediately thought, that's an interesting word to be used there. What does that word mean? I mean, right on the surface, it looks like the word taught could have been used. I have taught your name to these people, or I have proclaimed your name to these people. But if you look up this Greek word for manifested, it's the word phaneru, which means to make something visible or to make something known which was previously hidden or that could not be seen. So Jesus says, I have made something known that was once invisible. And what was that that was previously hidden? Your name. It says, I have manifested, I have made it known, I have made it visible. When it was once invisible, I have made your name visible to who? To everybody? No, Jesus says, I have made your name visible, what was once hidden, I've made it known to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Not to everybody in the world, but only to those whom the Father gave to Jesus out of the world. Those whom the Father gave, he made them alive. And they could now see what they once could not see. So we need to understand, those who are unbelievers, 
It's not because we need to win a debate with them to get them to come to Christ. It's not intellectual exercise that's going to win them to Christ. They need to be prayed for. You need to use the Word of God in their life, understanding that they're not coming unless the Holy Spirit of God is what draws them to come. Don't try to do it in your own human effort. Scripture goes to continue on. It says, yours, this is Jesus speaking, remember, yours the Father, they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. We might easily think, aha, they've kept your word. That's what means that they chose to be a Christian, not Jesus giving them eternal life. But we need to remember they couldn't have kept the word until they first saw the word, and they couldn't see the word until they actually believed. And they couldn't have believed unless they were given from the Father to the Son. It goes back to this, what came first, the chicken or the egg, right? And I always say the chicken, because it has to start with God. God's the one that starts the process. That's what we see from Scripture. So God manifested to them the word revealed. Verse 7, now they know that everything you have given me is from you. Verse 8, for I, Jesus, have given them the words that you gave me. And they have received them and have come to know them in truth that I came to you. And they have believed that you sent me. So church, here is a summary for us. Here's why this is important today. Everything we have. Everything you have is from Christ, and it came from God. In this passage, we see God the Father who gave it to Christ. Christ was entrusted with it, and he gave it to us. And I've just made a list of a few things off the top of my head that I thought through of things we have been given. I'm sure cumulatively we can think of many more things we have been given. But listen to all we have been given. We've learned this morning, we have been given eternal life. We have been given the ministry of reconciliation. We have been given the church. We have been given our time, our talents. We have been given a spouse. Many of us have been given family. We've been given mercy. We've been given love. We've been given the word of God. We've been given a new heart. And now that we have been given all of these things from the Father to the Son and the Son gave them to us, what are we, church, what are you to do with all the things you have been given? What do we do with them? We give them back. We give them all back. Now, in reality, we know they're not ours. They're His. We can't own any of it. It's all God's. But we can understand that it's all His. We can give back mentally because we know they're borrowed. We see even from our own passage this morning that this eternal life was given. So we give back. I want us to work briefly through what God has given and how we can give back. We've been given eternal life. As we have been given eternal life, we're called to go and proclaim the good news to others, to share with them how they too can have eternal life. 
We've been given a ministry of reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5, 18. All this is from God, who through Christ, He reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Those who are hurting, you can reconcile. We can go with the Word of God and reconcile people back to God. We have been given the church. It seems today... Most people don't understand or recognize the gift of the church. This is just one thing that they do every now and then on a Sunday morning. But do we realize we've been given the church and blessed with the church? It is a gift. How committed are you to the church? Whether you're a snowbird here or you're a member, the church If you're a member here, this church. If you're a member elsewhere, that church. Are you committed? Is this what you consider your family, your body? The way New Testament teaches of the church is it is part of you. You're a member of it. The way you treat your body, you should be treating the church much greater than the way you treat your own body because this is the body of Christ and you're part of it. The church should not have to work hard to get people to serve because by you serving in the church, you're serving the rest of the body and yourself. So we've been given the church so that we can give of our time, our talents, our efforts, our finances. We give it back to the church because the church is part of us. Ephesians 3, 21, to him be glory in the church. Ephesians also talks about that God's glory is manifested and His wisdom is manifested in the church. It's what He left here on this world for us and for the world. We've been given our time, our talents. 1 Peter 4, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. If you've been given a spouse, your spouse is given for what purpose? Ultimately, your spouse was given to you to reflect the marriage that Jesus Christ has with his church. We get blessings out of being married. I get joy out of being married, but ultimately my job as a husband is that in my marriage to my wife, that when people see our marriage, they see a reflection of how much Jesus loved the church. That's because of how I'm serving her, how I'm washing her in the word, how I'm praying for her, how I'm sacrificing for her, how I'm not getting bent out of shape when I don't get what I want, because Jesus served the church. And so our marriage should be a reflection of that. That's what it was designed for. You read Ephesians, it says this is a great mystery how your marriage and the church work together. Jesus is the groom and the church is the bride. Wives, do you treat your marriage in that respect? I just hit hard on the husband's leading, but you also are called by God to honor and obey, and to work in and through your marriage in a way that honors him as well. And just as we are called to submit the husbands to the Lord, Scripture also challenges you, submit to your husband as to the Lord. Not because he's always right, 
but it's a way how you bring honor and glory to the Father. Our marriage should be a reflection of that. We've been given our spouse for that purpose. We've been given a family. Do we raise our children in ways that honor the Lord? Maybe, you know, you didn't do such a good job of that, but now you're grandparents, and you have more opportunity to come alongside your grandchildren and to raise them up, to give back as you've been given. We have been shown great mercy. Ephesians 2, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, it is by grace we have been saved. We've been shown great mercy. We've been given love so that we can show love to those who don't deserve it. We love because he first loved us. And we are called to love those even when they don't love us the same way. We've been given the word of God so that we are to go out and teach and command people, command the commandments that we've been given. We see a picture in the New Testament in Revelations of this giving and giving back. Revelation chapter 2, verse 10. These were believers in the New Testament. We know from church history that they endured intense persecution under Emperor Nero, the Roman emperor at that time. And it says this in Revelation chapter 2, verse 10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. All throughout this section it says, but endure. Those who endure till the end will be saved. What's called perseverance of the saints. Those who endure till the end. Just like that graduating class, there are no dropouts. You work all the way through the end. And so these New Testament saints were given this promise and this encouragement in the book of Revelation that persecution was coming. But if they remained steadfast, they would be taken to glory, given a crown. Two chapters later, they were killed. They were taken to glory. And we see this picture in Scripture. Around the throne were 24 elders. Seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their head. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. Before the throne were burning seven torches of fire. And it said that they said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor to thanks of him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And it says this, they cast their crowns before the throne. So they just worked and persevered and were burned alive and tortured to receive this crown. That was one of the gifts and the rewards of their work that they were promised chapters before. That if you do this, you will be granted a crown. A couple chapters later, it says they cast their crowns before him. This is why one day we get before the Lord, we will have our crowns 
And we will take it off because in that moment, we recognize and we realize that it was never ours to have. It was given to us. Our eternal life, according to John 17, was given by the Father to the Son, given to us. I endured because I was given endurance from the Holy Spirit. I persevered because I was given perseverance. These saints recognize and realize that the only reason they were there was because of God's mercy in their life towards them. That's why they take off their greatest reward, their crown, and they just throw it back to him because they realize it was never theirs. It was given to them just as everything in this life is good that we have. We give it back to him. And as they cast the crowns, they said, Worthy are you, O Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Romans eleven thirty six says, And from him and through him and to him, Jesus Christ, to him be glory forever. Church, I hope we understand and recognize and realize what we have been given. It is not of ourselves. It is a gift of God. And because of that, we will give those crowns one day back to him. And this is why we give him praise today. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for what you have given us. God, forgive us for forgetting and living this life for trinkets and treasures and things that one day are going to burn. God, forgive us for being so focused on those things. Help us to realize what you have given us and to not forsake these things during our time here. God, we thank you for giving us, as we've read this morning, eternal life. We know that it's from you and for you and to you and for your purposes. And we thank you that we get to be partakers of that. As Ephesians says, it was not of ourselves, it was a gift. And we thank you for that gift. God, we thank you for the blessings of friends, of a church that you left here for us to live out and live in and live through the other ways how you've gifted us and blessed us and what you've given us, a ministry of reconciliation, that you've given us the word of God so that we can love others and show mercy to others, that we can have others come to us and point out sins in our lives so that we can grow more holy in you. This is where this is supposed to be done at is in the church. Help us to be more faithful to you through the church. Help us to not be about our own lives and have the church be a sidelined item. God, we thank you for worship that we're about to have. God, we give you praise as one day we will be able to cast those crowns back to you. We thank you for your word that gives us a glimpse, gives us a glimpse of this today, that everything is from you. And that we're able to glorify you in all these ways. God, how unworthy we are, but what a privilege it is. You give us so many blessings that we don't deserve. God, we give you praise and praise and praise and praise.
We thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace in our life that is sufficient for whatever it is we're going through. God, I pray for those in the congregation. May you comfort those who are hurting, who are in affliction. God, I pray that you give them a comfort and a measure that only you can give. God, we thank you for what it means that we can be in Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.